0: Good morning. Thank you for hosting the stage so wonderfully. And yes, as you just said, we talk about many different kinds of divides at Republica, about all kinds of digital divides, data divides, gender divides, but today we want to talk about a different kind of divide, identity. As more than one billion people lack the most basic identity papers, and most of those people... Live in the global south and our women and children. We have two very qualified experts to discuss this topic here with us today, and I'd like to welcome them on stage. Karl Steinacker, the team leader for digital identity with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Welcome, Karl. Thanks. And Valerie Kahn, independent advisor on digital identity, She's an advocate for digital inclusion. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to begin by giving you a little bit more background on both our speakers and then a quick introduction to the format before we kick things off. Carl um, has got a wealth of experience, having spent many years in Africa and the Middle East, but also in the UNHCR headquarters in Geneva. He's built up different refugee camps and closed them as well. He was in charge of refugee registration and the introduction of biometrics at UNHCR from 2004 to 2008. And he leads the UNHCR team on digital identity ban- management based in Copenhagen. And Valerie, as I said, is an independent consultant. She's based in London. She has a focus on digital identity in general, and particularly how we can improve the delivery to to the people who need identity in less developed regions. Um, Her approach is based on strengthening local capacities, including getting the right policy frameworks in place, regulations, but also building up skills for people, and financial capabilities. I'm very happy to have them both here, sort of bringing in two different sides um, perspectives to the discussion. The format for this session is going to be as such that both Carl and Valerie are going to give a short introductory talk, about 10 to 15 minutes. Carl is going to share a little bit the sort of historical background of the journey that identity management has had over the last years. And Valerie is going to get a bit more technical and sort of showcase the different digital possibilities that we have today. And then after their talks, we're going to sit here on the panel and debate this topic. Also with you, thank you for coming early in the morning to Republica. We look forward also to, well, to receive your questions here on stage all right, so to kick things off, Carl, would you like to start with your talk? Okay.
1: Thank, thanks very much, Geraldine. Yes, good morning, and uh, thank you for coming that early uh, to hall number five i'm going to talk about two journeys. one is the refugee journey, and one is if you want, the institutional journey of uh, the UNHCR for which I work since more than 25 years and um, and uh, then uh, Valerie will, will, as I said, follow. You know, uh, while I'm talking, uh, you will see in the background some slides we put up and most of the time you will see people on the move. Because, you know, being a refugee or being a displaced person means that you have to move, not because you want to move, but because you are forced to move. And we know that ourselves that moving around is very much uh, facilitated by having Documents, identity documents, especially if you need to cross borders. And a refugee, by definition, is somebody who crosses a border. There is no refugee, in a legal sense at least, who is residing in his own country. So a refugee, by definition, crosses a border, internally displaced people, obviously stay with them. Now, if you arrive across a border, you ought to have identification, because the... There is no right, no universal right to cross borders or to be admitted to a country. This is a, the right uh, countries reserve for themselves to admit you to their territory or not. The only exception to that rule, the only exception is refugee status. The fact that you can arrive at a territory of a state and say, I'm a refugee, I want you to look into my case and then decide whether I... Um, I can stay here or not. So documentation is extremely important and is therefore not some red tape the UN or whoever has invented, but obviously if people cross a border, uh, they need to be registered because otherwise the procedure which follows cannot take place. So UNHCR is registering, and that is how we looked at it from our journey, refugees for 60 years now. Refugees cross the border, they are being registered, governments are notified that so and so is on their territory and therefore um, they have a claim as an asylum seeker or they get refugee status, whatever it is. And then, (coughs) in in, in many cases, especially in, in poor countries, those poor countries don't have necessarily the means you know, to st- sustain uh, additional population, a population which is destitute, a population which needs to be fed and sheltered and so on. So, <coughs> this registration procedure also very much serves the internal relief administration of this relief industry which has developed over the last decades uh, in the UN, but also the NGO uh, and so on. So. Uh, people are registered, uh, so that they can uh, receive what we call their entitlements. And entitlements in, in, the, in the global south is not very much, you know, it's a tent, it's a plastic sheet to cover your head, it's a, a sack of rice, a bit of sugar, salt and oil. And uh, that's how the business has been done for, for decades, for decades. But something is changing. Something is changing, and uh, that is, uh, technology is changing, and with technology, um, and the numbers we are talking about are changing. Um, the, we, we have not, no exact figures, but we reckon there are more than 60 million displaced, possibly displaced people at the moment uh, on this planet. That's about the size, of the population of France, you know, that's not a small number of people, out of which more than 20 million are refugees. And uh, these populations are living uh, on the expense of of other governments, of the governments of the North, the governments (laughs) who contribute through their taxpayers' money to their upkeep. And um, they want value for money. Those governments want value for money and those governments and put agencies like ours under a lot of scrutiny, you know, to spend their money um, in a way which they can defend, you know, vis-à-vis their voters or their parliaments or their audit courts or whatever. Yes. So these two together, the increase of, uh, of, of of beneficiaries, and you know, I know there is a lot of discussion in Germany in Europe, and you know, about refugees here, but that's a drop in the ocean. Ninety percent of the people we are talking about are not in Europe. More than 90% are in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, in Sub-Saharan Africa. So that's where the problem is. Here, this is being dealt with. And this is being dealt with by the governments here, because the governments in the North are sufficiently wealthy to do this. But it's in the South, where governments have basically delegated, delegated the, the upkeep and, uh, of, of this population to international organizations. And the advent of new technologies basically puts a lot of pressure on us, on those who deliver aid, you know, to modernize our systems. So the first, uh, um, you know, so what was a pen and paper exercise in the 1950s and 60s uh, was then kind of automated uh, in the 80s and 90s, um, at a time when the countries in which we were operating were far uh, uh, of having such technologies. And um, those countries uh, basically, as I said, kind of delegated that task uh, to the international community. And um, we introduced then new features like biometrics. Biometrics um, is under a lot of discussion, but uh, was very much welcomed by those people who do uh, um, offer and and work in the relief sector because it was considered to be a much more dignified way of identifying people than the way it was done before the way it was done before you know in mass situations uh, where you have to uh, you know really use completely different systems of of, of amassing people crowd control and so on was not very dignified so uh, biometrics was introduced as a Um, right uh, early and there are different types of biometrics anyway. Now, (coughs) we are at a situation where um, UNHCR, my organization, has more than uh, uh, 8 million data sets or data sets about 8 million refugees in our databases. Uh, The World Food Programme, which does not only feed refugees but many more populations, um, has even more, I think, 20 million or. Or more than 20 million. And you know, as data is the new money, a lot of people are now interested in our data. And we didn't realize that. We, were, you know, we are a bureaucracy, very conservative bunch of people. So we have all these uh, data in our databases, and we realize, oh, there is interest from the private sector. They, you know, they would like to see our data. They would say they come and say, well, you know what? You have all these people. And it's true, these people, you know, they are poor and they can't have bank accounts. They can't do online banking. And so, so can't we, hmm, Can't we, you know, can't we do something? Can we not put money transfers in and whatever? And, you know, and, and we were listening to that and we said, hmm, very interesting. Because, you know, one of the, the, the basic problems is that in this closed-loop system where refugees are in our databases, they are still have excluded from many services. They are excluded from very basic things like freedom of movement often depending on the country. They are excluded from buying a SIM card. You know, it's only in a few countries where where, where refugees can legally buy a SIM card. Um, Labour market, you name it, there are a lot of uh, measures in, in various countries taken, you know, to exclude and to keep refugees out of the normal socio-economic system. And then, you know, we started, in, uh, uh, you know, coming from this, out from these external pressures which were put on us by governments and by um, industries, by business, and to say, hey, maybe it's time that we as an institution review our own way of doing business and review this, what we call registration, and see maybe it's, there's much more to it than, you know, just having a closed-loop closed system where, where we uh, collect data for ourselves and for our own purposes. And uh, at that time, um, the uh, Sustainable Development Goals were also worked on. And one uh, you might know that uh, Goal 16.9 or Target 9 of Goal 16, whatever it is, says Identity for All by 2030. So the, the countries and the UN is an organization of countries, you know, it's not an NGO, um, has committed by 2030 that everyone should have an identity. And the reality, of course, is that whatever we give refugees is not an identity. No one has ever asked the UN to provide identities. And we have populations which come without anything. You know, not only because in many countries, identity papers or identity is not normally established, but because of the situation. You know, when uh, Boko Haram, to give you an example, started their insurgency in northeastern Nigeria, the first thing they did is they burned down all government offices, including the civil registration offices. So you have millions of people who move around and have nothing. Have nothing and uh, uh, cannot refer back to anything and say, well, you know, I might not have a document, but over there is the civil registry department I can get... Anew. No, there is nothing. The, the reality for millions of people on this planet is there is nothing. And according to the World Bank <coughs> figures, they reckon that one billion people, one billion people have no identity documents. Now, no identity documents, I don't need to tell you what that means. You know, in your normal life, you know that you, whenever you have to produce identity documents and that you need identity documents to get other documents. I mentioned SIM cards, I mentioned maybe credit cards, bank accounts and so on. So therefore we collectively in the UN but also with, with, with other institutions are now thinking how can we use this data which is there. You know the, the personal data, the claimed identities of people because very often they have no documents. How can we use them and make them useful for people so that they can be included that they can uh, you know that they very basic things which we take for granted they can do that they can move around freely that they can have access to services and so on and that is digital identity and digital the digital space is added to the physical space so when we talk about freedom of movement there's the movement that you uh, you know you move in a territory but maybe you also move in the digital space so this is what is going on and we hopefully um, in a few years are able also to propose states, different systems, because the bottom line is that we can give people all kinds of documents or gadgets, you know, we can give identities of QR codes and of screens and smart cards and whatnot. If those identities are not recognized, they are not very useful. In fact, they are useless. And therefore, it's technology plus the regulatory framework which is required on which we are working, and hopefully, in a, in a few years, we can come back here and uh, give you good news on identity for forcibly displaced people. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you, Carl. Thank you very much, Carl. Very interesting. Um, Valerie's up next with her input, and please make m- notes of your questions and comments. I've definitely got a few. That,
2: yeah, very insightful input. Yes, so thank you, Geraldine, and uh, good morning, everybody. Very excited to be here. Um, so I would like to pick up to the points that Carl was just introducing. <clears throat> and I think, I mean, importantly, I hope you overheard that Carl was introducing the concept of identity as a right that gives, like as a right before the law that basically enables people to access goods and services, So, on the basis, as you heard as well, there are 1.1 billion people in the world that don't have this access to these services. So that's a problem, but I would like to actually build on that and extend on that and say, just like this little girl is pointing out, um, we are humans at the end of the day and being human means hopefully more than being a refugee at that point in time with access or with needs to access to services and goods. And what I'm referring to is the ability to actually start using this further. So what is it that this little girl would need in order to trust that she actually eventually gets access to education, that with this she actually has the ability to build a career which enables her to earn money, which enables her to open a bank account and so on and so forth. So hopefully she will be buying a flight like an uh, airline ticket and actually cross borders herself one day. And at the same time, you obviously want a system that can trust in her collecting this type of information so that she does get access to all of this. I mean, banks eventually also need to trust into a system. So, on that basis, I also will just pick up a few points um, around technology and digital and so on. Because at the end of the day, We do have identities already today in some parts. Certain people might lose them, but then again, identity systems today also suffer from a a great um, uh, problem around um, fragmentation. We don't capture all the necessary information, or we might capture it wrongly. The systems are complicated, and very often the systems are being abused as well. So what are our options today? What is the environment we're working in? And like Carl was saying as well, technology has certainly arrived. It has arrived here, but it has also arrived in all the regions that we're working in. Today, 7 out of 10 people have access to a mobile phone. And that's, I'm talking about the poor households. Also, the estimation is that in about 2020, 50% of these people will have access to a smartphone. And remember, this is all more than they have today, access to sanitation, clean water or energy. And over the time distance, that is a massive growth. So what does that mean? I mean, what does that enable us to do? And I said smartphones, so obviously they start having access to internet as well. Well, by all its, its excitement, that obviously also bears, bears certain risks and uh, certain um, things that we probably want to be aware of, just to understand who is in the game. And if you think today, within like across Africa, seven out of ten people use Facebook as the entrance to the internet. For them, Facebook is the internet. And I think it's important to be aware of that as well. They know they know how to use and how to handle navigate around these digital digital uh, technologies but there are certain entrances that we might not have had when we started using the internet. So again what does that mean to us? I mean what does that mean to organizations? And we talk much about as well um, what does that mean to, to governments? What does that enable them possibly to do? And I think generally we can be excited about this. I mean, there is much great coming from this. This enables a lot of new open doors that we can use. But it's important to notice as well, of course, that what excites someone, and I mean, we'll surely talk about all different technologies as well, we got to be aware that there are always two sides to this. So what excites someone might look very different to someone else. So it's important to consider perceptions. So, Let's break this all down because exactly to understand all these perceptions you need to understand the situation on the ground and you need to understand what you're actually trying to achieve. And for that it is important to understand the process steps that you're actually trying to tackle because overall it's not that complicated really. So, first of all, think about an identity system to be able to include people. Inclusion is the most important first, first process step. You want to make sure that you can go into regions that are hard to reach and you can reach people that are hard to reach as well. They might be disabled, they might be illiterate, and so on and so forth. And when you reach inclusion, you actually overcome the problem of fragmentation. So, let me give you an example. Um, 20 years, Peru was suffering from horrible violence between government and rebel groups. That led to about 70,000 people dead, it led to about 600,000 people displaced, and it led to many more people being without any document. Now, in this chaotic process, people started to get back onto the system, and many people used this as as an opportunity as well to register themselves twice, other people had no opportunity to be registered, And then, of course, you have all these rebel groups that might want to disappear as well. So they also find a new way of being a new person. And ultimately, of course, that means that eventually an electoral process comes up and people don't trust it anymore. And that means that people don't trust the democracy they live in. So Peru put a great effort into all of this and actually managed to almost reach 100% coverage and... They did this in such a way that was so inclusive to everybody that people today trust the the Perun identity system more than they actually trust in the Catholic Church. That's something I'd say. So, inclusion. But what do you do? You've got everybody on the system. You want to make sure that when they come back, you can actually verify them a missing verification often leads to fragmentation as well but it also leads to abuse of the system and it also leads to people basically trying to double dip as we call it they want to they basically want to take things twice or three times out of the system so again i'll give you an example here nigeria nigeria set up a process to verify its workers its civil workers so what they did is they let everybody who wanted to receive their salary come back and verify themselves. Now, that process it like showed them that there were 65,000 people that actually weren't on the payroll. And that was a saving within one year of 1 billion US dollars. And just to put that in perspective as well, that was a return of investment of 20,000%. So, definitely worth putting the money into the hand. So... You've identified them, you've verified them. But how do you make sure that they actually receive what they're eligible to receive? If you run a program that targets pregnant women, you don't want to just make sure it's a woman in front of you. You want to, in fact, make sure it's a pregnant woman. If you run a program for children to encourage them to go to school, you want to, in fact, make sure that the benefit goes to the children that attended the class. And... I mean, you can look at your own life as well. If you go to the bank, that's not enough. If you just verify who you are, that's not enough. You need to show further information. We live with this across the board everywhere. So, like I said, you want to make sure you get identification, verification and assertion right. Now, what does that, however, mean as well? Imagine you do this. Then you basically create a string of information that is attached to you that just tells you who you are and everything you do with this repeatedly. And you can probably imagine how incredibly valuable that is for some people. So just to give you a few numbers here as well, last year alone you, we had 2.5 billion cases that were hacked. That led to 60 billion US dollars lost in the system. and. That's an increase from the year before of 88%. Now, that's here to stay, that's not going to go away. You've ha- you have to deal with it. So the important thing is, don't try to find a way to keep your data secure, because it's not secure, it's, it will never be secure. Hackers are ahead of you. But what you can make sure is, you can make the, the information less valuable. Stop attaching everything together, stop making a string. Don't create that incentive. Detach the information from one, and, uh, from one another. Because if you know about me that I am Valerie Khan and I have a certain health record and I have a certain place where I live and I do these things and I have these friends, that's valuable. If you know that I'm Valerie Khan and I'm standing here today, well, that's not valuable because you know that anyway. So make sure that your data privacy and protection rules are in place and that you safeguard the data accurately by not even creating an incentive. And how is that possible? Well... It's actually, again, it's fairly easy, just work with what you've got already. Your current system offers a lot of opportunities and possibilities. And what I mean with that is you've got to create a governance, a governance that works for everybody, that includes everybody, because at the end of the day, you might think that there is an odd one, but don't believe it because it might just be the one that makes the show. So include everybody and do that by creating an architecture that works for everybody. So, like I said at the beginning, there are certain elements that you want to think about, but again, it's not actually that complicated if you start really taking a process step. So, let me just repeat again to you, what is it? You want to make sure that you have inclusion, verification and assertion in place. You also set up a robust trust government that invites everybody to participate. You have an easy and integrated architecture that makes it easy for everybody to collaborate. And you respect data privacy and data protection to avoid any theft or mishandling of your data. And if you do that, you actually are going to achieve the most efficient effect of an economic system because you overcome all the problems of exclusion, of fragmentation, and you basically make sure that you do not leave anyone behind. And if you follow that path, then I would argue you are creating a future for this little girl, just like the little girl at the beginning as well, because now she can trust in a system that offers her all these opportunities. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Carl and Valerie, for those really interesting inputs. We have about just under 30 minutes left to discuss. Um, If you'd like to join in with a question or a comment, I'm gonna open the floor in about 10 minutes. It'd be wonderful if you can come to the middle of the floor here and we will meet you there with a microphone um, in between our two rows of chairs. Thanks. Um, You touched upon a lot of very interesting topics that I hope we can all um, address on the panel now. Um, So, I'd like to talk about uh, some of the points that you raised, including the technological sides that you spoke about and maybe think that a little bit further, but before we go there, I'd like to take it back a step and really talk about identity ownership. And um, I think you made a very good point about explaining why identity is important for many people in many different positions, whether you're a refugee or a seeker of your social services in your state. Um, I want to start really, really basic. I don't own my passport. My government owns it, correct? That's the case, I'm assuming, not just in Germany, but in all countries around the world. Um, Do you think it's important that we rethink the sort of idea of identity management looking at the individual of the owner of the identity rather than the state or third party force?
1: Well, I think identity, in, in fact, is a, is, a, is a deal, right? The state establishes your identity and therefore basically trusts you that you are the person you are. And you, being the individual, you trust that the government or the, the authorities representing that state handle that identity data respectfully and appropriately. And the problem we have in many places is that that trust relationship does not exist. Right. Right? So th- the state does not uh, uh, trust the people which they meet in the, in the street, so to speak, and, and in, in particular, uh, uh, people do not trust that their data is. Is, is, is secure, safe, and, and properly dealt with. And therefore, trust is the key concept of identity. Without trust systems, there can't be uh, uh, an identity on, on, on let's say, in a mutual uh, 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 basis. So the question is, therefore, how do we get there? We know what we want to. Are there intermediate steps? Are there in a, and yes, we, we believe that there could be some intermediate steps where we could create complementary identity systems let's say the best example is always given around birth certificates you know in in, in most sub-saharan africas the majority of children has no birth certificates however the mer- most of them are vaccinated and there are uh, vaccination booklets and the question is could for instance you know could in which way you know these booklets could substitute or complement uh, birth certificates you know these kind of discussions are going on so that we eventually reach full coverage of of uh, uh, of identity for 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 children. Can we uh, provide uh, um, user-centric identities? You know, can we give something to people who they which is basically certified? You know, there is a, there must be some certification to it, and then they can show it around. These discussions are ongoing, but they need to be negotiated and most likely they need to be negotiated country by country. It's very unlikely that we will have a universal regime on these kind of things. Now, one last word. I do not believe in crypto identity. Um, Valerie mentioned that you know the big tech companies have a huge market share. And obviously, they can identify people. They can do it m- maybe even better than, than uh, some states can do. But I cannot see the added value if we kind of outsource identity management or identity, the establishment and certification of identities to take to, to the tech sector.
0: I want to get there in just one minute. So thanks for already dropping the <laughs> big buzzword that we obviously want to talk about. Um, I want to also pass this question to you. Um, I thought an interesting point that you made is, you know, make your data less valuable. And I think that's a very important thing to say in many data contexts that we're active in. However, especially in this field where, in fact, you're not responsible for your own data string, if we follow this idea that you're um, sort of in charge of maintaining your identity, perhaps, but you don't issue yourself your identity and you're not sort of the owner of it, aren't there many governments, many... Um, players that have an interest in creating this long data string.
2: Hmm. Yeah, no, uh, actually it's um, interesting Interesting that we always think it's the governments that have that interest. Um, I would argue that currently, especially where we live, it's ourselves who do that most at the moment. Um, we open up a Facebook account and we give all information freely. And that is a long string of information that I think we should have learned from now the recent events, how that gets abused. And that's us That's us freely doing that. Um, The government is actually in fact not so much setting up a string um, because if you look at it, the passport is true. The passport is created by the government. The government gives you your nationality but you don't use your passport for everything and people don't type in your passport number as the reference for something even where you have to verify yourself with the passport. So your passport information is, the string on your passport information is actually a lot shorter than the strings we start creating for ourselves. Right. if I understood you correctly and I
0: hope, you know, luckily we're not quite there yet where Facebook requires you to enter your passport number as a user verification. It does in America. It does in America. It does in America now, no. Okay, and I mean, like that's you didn't raise the Equifax example, but no. of course, when you started speaking about identity theft and hacking in sensitive contexts, that's the best example for last yep. year, where basically two, nearly two-thirds of America has their social security number stolen. Yep. Yep. Um, but it, you made it sound also like um, n- not necessarily a believer in cryptography and um, protecting data that way. And because of this idea that, you know, hackers are always a step ahead of you?
2: Well, yeah, but I don't think that necessarily is, uh, is connected with one another. Um, hackers will always be ahead of you, regardless which technology you use. I mean, today already, um, it's fairly easy to actually find out my real identity of my Bitcoin wallet. And that's already crypto like cryptographically secured but if you just follow people's patterns if you don't set up a wallet every time if you follow people's pattern you can identify the person at the end and it's been shown already scientifically so it's not necessarily the technology that serves you from that hacking it's like I said it's really try to like try to find a way to separate the information from each other so you never have a string you never have the information attached do you, how,
0: how closely do you think these discourses are related to one another, though? Or do you see these as being like very far apart in the same... Um, in a a spectrum of discourses around identity because the one discussion that we have here a lot is about, you know, making sure you know what information you put out there, managing your own digital identity, being aware of it and being aware of the consequences you might have, which is a discussion that we leave in a lot of the time very safe and wealthy contexts here rather than discussion of sort of the bare necessity of being able to own and maintain an identity.
1: I I I think you see... There is an obvious link, and, and it has to do with the fact that a refugee is somebody who has lost trust in the country where he, has, he comes from. He's gone somewhere else, for, what, for whatever reason. And, um, and he has good reason to conceal a lot of his information. And therefore, wherever he arrives, Uh, that refugee uh, you need first of all to to create some kind of trust relationship that he offers information Uh, because you know after a traumatizing uh, departure and and, you know having maybe left a, a police state where there was a lot of surveillance so that's not obvious you know so you have to guarantee privacy and data security somehow you know otherwise uh, you are going to end up with with phantom and ghost identities, and, and, and so on, which um, uh, which doesn't help because you know first of all, it 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 uh, is likely to fall back on the individual, but it also leads you know to special treatments of of, 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 of refugees uh, in 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 the way uh, states deal with them. You know a lot of the data protection, which is normal for citizens, is simply not applied to refugees, especially also here in the north. I
0: want to touch on two things that you mentioned in your talk. Mm -hmm. The one was, um, you know, I was like, the private sector interest in the data that you have today. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're dealing with people in the most sensitive situations and Mm -hmm. very valuable yet very, very personal data. Um, How do you deal with those data requests? What is the general attitude um, toward...
1: We reject them. But you see, But it was an interesting experience for us to see, oh, you know, why would... You know, um, give you an example, we, we have a, a database with two million anonymous iris scans uh, from Afghan refugees who uh, uh, repatriated to, uh, from Pakistan to, to Afghanistan. And all of a sudden, you know, there was a lot of interest. People wanted to have access to this anonymous, I mean, they are anonymous. Uh, we don't know whose iris scans these are, but there is interest, and then there is, you know, and then some people say we have a scientific interest, and other people have. You know, there is, you know, and and uh, so far, I mean, we 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 do not share data uh, uh, with the private sector, but there is a very clear interest uh, to that. So um, maybe maybe more and. Uh, and also we see our data is not actually organized right now that we could, you know, share just parts of it or, or this or that. So it's, it's, it's but it, it, it triggered, you know, a kind of review and rethinking of, of what we have and how we use it and what we use it for. And we have come now to the conclusion that the best way of using data is in the benefit of the individual. But that means also that we have to rework a lot of business processes we have internally. Right now, refugees can't, access their own data. They can't query their data and things like that.
0: So we're right in the middle of the topic of data management. Mm-hmm. Isn't that where the blockchain offers an incredible opportunity to rethink the whole idea about data ownership and data management?
2: Well, I think blockchain holds a lot of promises for the future. Um, and as a matter of fact, I am, I am a guest lecturer at UCL for Blockchain for Identity so I can't deny that I do see a potential there. Um, But I think we've got to be careful, and and this is what I was trying to bring across as well. There are certain elements that we need to obey to. There are certain rules and principles that we need to stick to. And blockchain, just like any other technology, and actually, I mean, I I would actually really try to more uh, lean towards distributed ledger technology, Um, just like any other technology has to obey these rules and has to fit into the situation we have, including offline and online and all of these circumstances that we're we're dealing with. Um, So I'm not there yet to say that I think the solution is living up to the promises it gives at the moment, but it certainly is a technology that is worth looking into and investigating further. So I wouldn't exclude it. I would just say let's, let's look at it just like we look at everything else in order to fill the gaps and fill the requirements that we need. Carl,
0: you were sceptical.
2: Why is
1: that? I, I hoped you wouldn't pose that question. <laughs> um, I have blockchain vendors passing by my office by the week. <laughs> <laughs> and my uh, it has become my habit to put the question back and say, can you tell me what my problem is? And when you have explained to me what my problem is, then... Explain to me wh- how blockchain is going to lose, uh, solve it. Um, we are going to do a, a blockchain pilot soon. Um, frankly, I'm not a techie at all. You know, I uh, I've managed refugee camps. That's where I come from. Um, I have no pros and no cons. Um, I just think that you know, that blockchain has to show its value in practice. You know, if I need a you know. Um, <laughs> You know, most refugees. You know, I mean, we just uh, the global south. How it works? You know, refugee camps have no electricity to start with. You know, I, I understand that you need a, a power plant to run. You know, your your blockchain uh, uh, mining. I, I so I you know there are certain questions. Or oh, you know, it was said. You know. Uh, You know, uh, people in Africa have uh, have have telephones. Yes, they have telephones, but they are shared. Five people share a telephone. You know, Uh, uh, so so I'm not hundred percent sure how this would work. If it works, I'm all for it. I just want to remind
0: you guys that your questions are very welcome, and if you want to ask one, it would be wonderful if you can just come up in the middle of uh, these two aisles. Okay, somebody's jumping right up. Do we have a microphone for you, please? The microphone is on its way to you. Um, I'm going to ask a quick question while it's coming to you. Um, So on the complete other end of the spectrum of believers, organizations like, without wanting to advertise for the BitNation and other organizations like that, who believe that in a maybe not too far away future we'll all be the individual managers of identity, we can sort of choose our... um, peer group to belong to free of having a nationality and a sort of completely other idea of how identity and identity magic
2: can work. Do you see, do you think that's crazy talk? Well, I I think it comes down to governance. And that's, that's the thing. I mean, like, I think Karl is definitely right. It's like the, the companies are, coming by the day saying well we've got a solution for this and and yet they haven't been there they haven't seen the situation they don't know exactly what they're talking about they might not understand so it's kind of like hipster startups from rich european cities coming saying I'm gonna well, fix all your unfortunately problems. unfortunately there is a lot of that yes um, and I'm, i don't want to discourage the motivation that they put to the to the table i mean that's very good to see but at the same time um we need to think about the situation we have on the ground and We have, I mean, the the point is we have a situation on the ground. We have banks there. We have existing infrastructure. We have, like, businesses working there, and we need to incorporate them. So, if someone like BitNation can come along and actually work it out with all of them, then I would say, great, that, that seems to be the right way forward. But I would argue that we are probably in a very good position to intermediate that discussion and... That discussion isn't as easy as just a technology that says, look, look, we can do this for you. Right. Let's take these two questions. You first,
0: and then you.
3: Thank you. I'm Holger from GIZ. I have two questions. Um, First one, do you share the data um, with the countries of origins of the refugees? Are there requests? Um, And the second is you mentioned that uh, the data... um, Identity management is like um, a mix of technology and regulatory frameworks. Could you elaborate a bit more on the questions that arise uh, on the regulatory frameworks?
0: Both addressed to Carl or the oh, first to, to call Carl. the okay.
1: um, In principle, we do not share any data with countries of origin. Uh, that can change at the moment of repatriation. So, if there is an agreement, an international agreement, a signed uh, treaty between the country of origin and the country of uh, uh, asylum, that there is an organized and voluntary return, there might be some data shared. Obviously, you know the data who is going back. You know, uh, you know, when convoys organized or, or this kind of thing. Um, there will never be any, what we call, protection-sensitive data is, is, is shared. That is, that is uh, not happening. Um, with regard to um, technology and the regulatory framework. Um, yes, indeed. Um, you know, we can, and we, we are doing, we issue since, since years uh, 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 documents. Uh, maybe lately uh, uh, we are using plastic and smart cards and so on. But as I said, they have n- very different value depending on the environment where they are used. Um, you can, uh, and that depends basically on 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 those governments who 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 run the territory. They they can be extremely generous. Where basically. Uh, a, a UNHCR issued card is as good as a as a, a national ID card. Malaysia is a, is, a, is an example for that, let's say, and there are other places where we can issue basically a card which doesn't even allow you to leave the camp, because there is no freedom of movement for refugees in that particular country, and there are many of those, many more of those than the others. So, um, if if you were to you know so so we need to manage identity in a way which is um, aligned to 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 the situation and thereby also trying to change the situation uh, you know to and hopefully and and that's one of the uh, the, the the hopes we have is that uh, we can um through introduction of digital uh, uh, technology convince states. That uh, they can be less restrictive with, with, with refugees. Because one of the, 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 the changes in, in recent years is obviously that technology has become much cheaper, much more widespread, and countries which did not before use uh, uh, digital technology for population um, management, now they do, and, and therefore we have to see interoperabilities and compatibilities and so on. But in the end, it down, it, 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 it's what states allow. And that might be a question to uh, answer to your question is our experience is that in most cases it's what the state decides what matters and not what what others think they yeah. decide.
0: We have time for one last question.
3: Hi, um, this was a great conversation. Um, my name is Mickey McManus, author of uh, Trillions. And I'm curious, I haven't heard a lot of anyone talking about using actual scientists to validate or determine what's happening in a lot of these new technologies. You have data scientists, but those aren't really scientists. You have economists, those are barely scientists. You have, you have this sort of um, lack of rigor of evaluation. You have technologists advising places like the UN instead of scientists. So I'm really curious about, you know, in science you have a lot of Opportunities to look at biomimicry, for example, but for information systems nature has been running a complex information system for three billion years Not so bad But I don't hear and nature has nothing that's entirely peer-to-peer and nothing that's entirely um, A single point of failure or centralized because nature abhors singletons Um, So I'm just curious. I don't hear much rigor around how we study nature and biomimicry for information systems to actually look at how They've already solved it um, so we have camouflage in nature because they're always bad people or bad organisms um, in World War II, We had scientists who built things like Bletchley Park and on the other side bad people who had science as well um, I haven't heard anything about pocket Bletchley Parks to go hide us back into the noise I haven't heard anything about kind of how we how we do biomimicry so I'm just curious what's happening in this in the standpoint of actually using and studying complex information systems that have been out there for a few billion years.
0: Can I just summarize, because this is also gonna be the closing question for the panel, maybe not summarize, but just add, I think what you said is, very interesting outlook. It sort of ties in also with the discussion, how far can you allow to be innovative and innovate as organizations such as yours um, when you need to, like you said, create trust and reliability, but on the other hand there's also a necessity to innovate and perhaps also a little bit of a future outlook um, as a closing statement from both of you.
1: Well, I, I, I said earlier that these discussions were brought to us externally you know uh, it's, it's, it's what governments want from us and what the private sector wants from us which in a way triggered this review and, and, and this innovative thinking um, and I suppose it will remain like that because we are an organization who operates on a shoestring and uh, which prouds itself that the most of its funding goes to poor people rather than you know uh, to be thought leaders of this or the other and um, so, yes, it's, it's, it's basically about establishing a, a conversation with those who are researchers. It's not about us doing that research. You will be waiting a long time uh, to, to hear from us uh, uh, this kind of uh, 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 thought, uh, thoughts and, and innovations and, and, and so on. It's, I, I don't think that's uh, our core competence. Our core competence is to protect refugees and, and we will use technology as appropriate and as innovative as we can. And we will always try to negotiate the best deal with the governments who host those refugees.
2: Um, I'm, I'm maybe in a little bit uh, in, in, a, in a better position, so to say, because I, I can afford have, having all these conversations. And um, I see as well that they get very much encouraged. Um, we work with a lot of academics. Um, we do actually try to be as scientific as it gets. Um, we've spent a lot of time in researching existing identity systems to the extent, and you can uh, you can check on us later if you want, um, that I would say we've very much looked into every identity system that is existing currently around the globe. And we've, What I showed you before, this whole process of identification, verification and assertion comes out of that research. It sounds simple, but it's actually a reflection of what we have seen over and over and over again. And we have seen it over and over again, missing one of them or being wrong in one of them or just doing it somehow differently. And we can say that if you do that... You don't do it right. So we're looking for the the golden egg, if you want, to say who's doing it. Who's doing it well? Who's doing all of this well? And that's a question that is more interesting, of course. Um, take all the learning, but is there actually anyone out there? Is there technology out there? And, and again, I, I include all technologies in this um, that can eventually achieve this. Um, and I, I think, as well, to to Carl's point, um, the fact that we sit here together shows that there is a communication also with the UN agencies, because it's true the UN agencies have a mandate that they need to pursue and not waste any money on the side. But people like us, we don't have that. So we're here to basically bring that knowledge in and encourage the, the conversation outside.
0: I thank you very much for also um, encouraging the conversation inside Republica. It was a very, very interesting session. I'd like to invite you both back to continue this discussion because I feel like we could have definitely gone on and maybe also um, included um, perhaps even some of the people um, affected by these situations or some of the people technologically developing some of these more avant-garde solutions. So it would be wonderful to continue this discussion with you both next year at Republica. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you all.